Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Today we are going to be in uh, week, I don't know what week it is, it doesn't matter, week three, being the church. Being the church, um, today is all about encouragement. Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is organizing the churches in the Greek Isle of Crete, and this is like an encouraging day. Um, I'm going to t- uh, talk about three different types of people, and I've named these. Paul doesn't say this in the letter. I've kind of coined these terms for Paul. Paul said he was okay with it. So we're going to be talking to sages, spring chickens, and workers. Sages, spring chickens, and workers. And, and so what we heard last week was don't be deceptive, don't be blown away by the rules of religion, don't be carried away by the current of culture. And so then today he goes from like, hey, don't, into hey, do. And so we're going to pick it up and we're going to read a bunch of text all at once and then we're going to just leave out of that and talk. So Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, you, Titus, however, teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in endurance. And likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, to not talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so what? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive." For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness, to purify for himself a people, that's you, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. That's a lot. And what it reminded me of was 2002's uh, published book, Rick Warren published a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Maybe you've heard of it. 2002, Rick Warren puts out this book. This is a newer cover. I didn't recognize it, but apparently that's what it looks like now. Uh, It says on the book cover there on your screen that it sold 35 million copies, but that's out of date. It's actually sold 50 million copies in 80 languages, which I would say, if Rick Warren were here, moderately successful. Maybe try harder. (laughs) 50 million copies is unreal. I first saw this book. I was a missionary in Johannesburg, South Africa. It was 2004. I'm in our, the, the church we're serving in. And I see a book on the shelf, and I opened it up. I'd never heard of it, which, I don't know, I was the only person. And I opened it up to the first page, and it was like, that's enough. I read the first sentence. Someone finally said it. This is amazing. I can't believe this guy has the guts to start this way. And I circled it there for you. He starts the book with, it's not about you. 
What's my purpose? People are opening the book to say, what is my purpose in life? Tell me about me. And Rick Warren goes, I got one for you. It's not about you. And, you know, America's head exploded, and then we bought 50 million copies. It's not about you. The, the kind of core tenets that I'll just walk through, and we're not going to talk about them, planned for God's pleasure. You were formed for God's family. You were created to become like Christ. You were shaped for serving God, and you were made for mission. None of those were about you. And, and for all, I don't know Rick Warren personally. I've never been to Saddleback Church. I don't know much about that. I know that this is strictly biblical, this concept, that it isn't about you. What, what was missing from the book, which I think was really interesting, was there was no mention of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like, like we as uh, American people, pursuit of happiness is like an inalienable right. I get to pursue that, and the government's job is to make sure I can pursue that, which is fine. I'm not fighting the Declaration of Independence here. It's not my, not my story. The, the juxtaposition we have to make is that in our society, our society has been built on the concept of individual freedom. It is about you. Now, it's about us, but it's about you within us. Everything in our modern culture is then set to appease the individual, too. Whatever makes you the star, whatever gives you agency. And we've been through this. We have each, in our own way, most of our stories, we've pursued our own gain into the ditches and the alleys of the world and kind of ended up broken and, and empty. What the Bible says and what Warren summed up so nicely is it isn't about you which is encouragement, whether you sense it or not. That society might be centered on you, but the whole of creation is centered on God. And if we can get that picture, society says the world is about you, and creation says the world is about God. And if we can just pull that off, then we're set up for what's next. You were made by God for God. And so in this passage, Paul is giving Titus instruction, and he's giving it to three specific groups, and I called them sages, spring chickens, and workers. And what he's going to tell all three in more or less kind of phraseology is it's, it's really not about you. Now, what you do matters and how you live matters and who you are matters, but the end result of that isn't about you. It's about something greater. He's encouraging the good in us, and he's encouraging us to live well. And by encouragement, this is one other distinction we have to make. In our society, encouragement means Help me feel better. So when someone's sad, you encourage them to happiness. And this is not that. This is encourage someone to live well. So it's like, let me add courage to you. And what do you need courage for? Do you need courage to do easy things? Do you need courage to like have another slice of pizza? Like you don't need courage for these sorts of things. You need courage for hard things. You need courage for like maybe scary things. You need courage to take faith steps. You need courage because it's not easy. If it was easy, you wouldn't need courage. And so what's happening is you're being encouraged. You're being told to take courage, grow courage, have courage. This matters. So I want to encourage you to be who you were created to be. So before we get there, I said spring chickens and sages. I want to define it for you. Actually, it makes me hungry. The later service is really going to struggle because chicken with sage sounds pretty good. Spring chicken, what does that mean? If you're of a certain vintage, you have no idea what that means. That means you are one. Um, spring chickens... If you, if you kind of, I was like, well, I mean, I didn't know why would they call them that? Well, in nature, chickens are born in the spring. They have chicks. And then you have the, all these baby chicks. Think Easter time, chicks everywhere. And, and then these chickens grow up. And as these chickens grow up, they get stronger and bigger and all these things. And yet, it isn't until their first winter, 
and they make it through the harshness of winter and they, they go through all those, the difficult season, it isn't until winter that they really kind of get tough. And so there was a day where you would go into a restaurant and it would say on the menu, spring chickens. And you knew that was the most tender bird you could get because it hadn't been through the hard things of its first winter. So tender and young was spring chicken. And so if you are in this room, I'm going to call you a spring chicken if you're of a certain age, which means you are young and you are tender. And that's a delicious thing, but also requires some different encouragement. So it means you haven't been through the hard stuff. You know people that are younger and get called old souls? Everybody knows a few of those people. You're like, well, that person's kind of got an old soul to them, don't they? Usually those people have been through some things. The reason we call them that is they've, they've got a sobriety to them that means they've probably been through something. It's interesting. I made a really simple slide. I want to illustrate spring chickens and then sages, so I'm going to put that up. I mean, right? I don't even have to explain it. So we're going to talk about it. So a sage, I'm going to just leave this up while I talk about it. You're not going to hear a word I say because this is confusing. A sage, then, is a person of wisdom. So spring chickens are these young and tender. A sage is a person of wisdom. This season, the sage season, starts around 50, 55 in our culture. It means you've been through it. It's a person who has been through the battles of life and has life to tell. So here's what this means. If you look at wisdom on the one axis and age on the other, as, as age increases generally, a generalization, some people maybe not, but as age increases, wisdom tends to increase with it. Why? Because you've lived through some stuff. Okay? So on the left, you'll notice the spring chicken. That's a pretty obvious one. Look at you baby birds. And we put 10 to 50 because it's a fluid. You're not totally sure where you end that season. And then if you'll notice on the right, there's a VHS tape. If you're wondering if you've moved into your sage season or if you're getting ready to be a sage, have you ever purchased a VHS tape? You're going to be moving into your sage season at this point if you're not already there. So like, like I'm in my early 40s and we had VHS tapes, but I don't remember going out and buying a bunch of VHS tapes. Like maybe one or two when you're nine or 10, it's like your birthday. But you know, when it's time to buy things, we're kind of in the DVD mode eventually. So if you like had a, your own VHS collection, you might be a sage, okay? So that's where we're headed. And then there's that messy in-between. I want to just point that out real quick, and then we're going to move straight into the, to encouraging the, the eaters. There's that in-between phase. It's like the ooh, early 40s to 50-ish, 55-ish, and it's sort of a strange season that everybody goes through, and nobody sees it coming because I've had more people in my office from like 37 to 50 than I expected who are going, this is a really difficult transition. My kids have aged out of this, and my friends are kind of changing. And this is the in-between season where you're starting to feel the saginess because you've got young parents asking you questions, but you haven't been through enough. You still have enough novel experiences ahead of you that you still need sages in your life to be telling you what to do because you're not sure what that next step is like. So if you're in that 40 to 50 zone, odds are you're starting to feel a little saginess, but you're not totally out of the, this is all new, and I don't know, my kid's going to college, what does that mean? It, so, so that's a fun season, but you're in between. It's okay to be in between. It applies, both apply to you here. So here we go. Um, everyone needs someone on the path. I just want to say that out loud. Everybody needs someone on the path. There's a qualifier. There is nobody, no matter how sagey you are, you're 136 years old, you've been through everything. You still need someone who's 137 to tell you what the next year is going to be like, to tell you what the next season is going to be like, to walk you through it. So everybody needs somebody. It isn't all about age, but everybody needs somebody to walk them through. So Paul's words, let's apply them specifically to the sage. Start with the sage. You have a lot of wisdom. You have more time than you ever have before. Like your time, you're getting more time. I have some free time. 
so you can give away that wisdom. Paul says older men should be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, and in love, and in endurance. And older women should be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Why? We said to teach what is good, to teach the younger among you is what Paul says. Have the olders teach the youngers. Have the sages teach the spring chickens. It's a vital task. It's a huge opportunity. What's the point? Why why did I make a point of this? Because this is what Rick Warren is saying. It's not about you. Your sage years are the most valuable commodity in the church. And if you hoard them and you don't pour them into the spring chickens that are still waiting to make that leap, then you have wasted them. It is an incredible resource to have the wisdom and the life experience, and, and it's, it's, it's yours to give away. And so it's not about you. It's about what you do with what God has done in you. This season of your life, if you are a sage, is about leaving a legacy. We're not trying to bury anybody. Okay, it's time to get out of the way. Not that. It's the opposite. I want you to engage more. I want you to be more invested, more involved, more engaged. We're not trying to get rid of you. We're trying to keep you in. Because what ends up happening in our culture, in our individualized culture, people hit the sage season and you go, man, I finally did this and I finally got rid of these kids. Their kids are off and the job and retirement, it's all done. And I'm just out. Finally, it's my time. Man, God is not going to begrudge you a nice cruise, and God is not going to begrudge you long, slow walks. God's not going to begrudge you having your time. But part of this season is is that it's not about you. It's about you pouring into the next. It's about you building the church of the future. But it doesn't happen accidentally. You can't accidentally mentor anyone any more than you accidentally plant a garden and cultivate, like, you know, your nice, fresh summer garden. No one accidentally starts a garden. And if you do accidentally start it, it ends just as randomly as it began. Your compost pile is not a garden. That's scraps. If your life and your legacy of wisdom and your sage years are about throwing the scraps out the window and hoping something grows, that's not what Scripture's asked us to do. It's about labor and love and sacrifice. Anybody, some of you are really good at growing things. That's not my story. But some of you are. And I'm always impressed, and, and I'm really thankful. Sometimes vegetables, I'll finish preaching, and I'll go in my office, and there's just vegetables on my desk. Summer's vegetable on your desk season. And I really love it, and I also recognize that there's so much effort that went into that, you know, zucchini showing up on my desk that I can't even imagine. The amount of weeding and the feeding and the watering and the this and the that and the prepping and the soil, and, the, and people are thinking it's so much labor. So when I enjoy it, I enjoy it doubly because I know how much work it is. This is what the sage season is like. It is labor. I'm not telling you it's easy. It's labor. Because um, the youngers, you know, and I'm following that messy middle, so I'm both. I gotta, I'm challenging myself on the one and challenging myself on the other. The youngers, we don't always know that we need you. So you kind of have to fight to remind us we know that we need to, to know what you know. We need to have access to your wisdom. We need it. We're desperate for it. We just aren't smart enough to know it. We're too dumb to know we need you. So we need you to be too stubborn to stop chasing us. Okay? Nick and I have been talking quietly behind the scenes. I'm outing it, so now you know. We've been kind of like trying to think, how do we activate sages, and how do we get the sage 
generation in our church to really be engaged. And we coined it like a, a phrase that I don't think it's official, but it's just something we talk about having, what if every community group had a sage seat? So no matter what the age of the group, no matter what the demographics of the group, every group had a, kind of that metaphorical seat saved, open, demanding a sage sit there. We need someone from that generation to come and, and tell us what's what, to come and show us the ropes, to come and walk us through seasons, to just be that, that kind of presence that when we don't know where we are, they'll say, oh, I've been there before. And it's, it's a radical departure from what we're used to because in our culture it says build a group of people that looks the most like you, thinks like you, is in your life stage, and you'll be really comfortable. And Scripture seems to be saying the opposite to the church. It says if the church is going to function, we need the olders to be engaged with the youngers, and we need the youngers to know they need the olders. good example of this uh, happening in real time, um, Libby Dixon, I didn't ask for her permission, but Libby Dixon has a group of uh, young women that meet with her. They meet regularly. They meet faithfully. And, and what I witness, and, and I get to meet with Libby some, and I get to hear just kind of how she's doing it, is she's not there to sort of like preach at anybody. What Libby does is she builds relationship with young women, and she walks through life with young women, and she builds trust with young women, not for some secret agenda, but just because she wants to love them and pour into their lives. And so she lives a certain way, and so these younger women can look at her, can honor her, can invite her into their lives, and she's earned the right then when they run through difficult seasons, when they have hard times, when they're struggling with whether it's the Bible or just life, she's earned the right to lay out wisdom. And they can take it, they can leave it, and she's great at this. She goes, you know what, I can't make anybody believe anything, but I'm happy if I have the right to speak that they're willing to listen. And the reason she has that is because she's faithfully cultivated relationship with regular interaction, with weekly time spent of just loving people. She's, she's being a sage. And now she has a group of young women that are open to her wisdom because she's done it well. If you are a sage and this is your season, don't waste it. What would it look like for you to earn the right to dispense your wisdom into another life? Because uh, what Paul is telling Titus is there is an invaluable ministry happening in that generation. So wherever you serve or whatever community group you're in or whatever, wherever you do life, cultivate relationship and intentionally give your life away. As the sages, let's move to the spring chickens. You're on your first lap. That's how I would probably describe that. If you're on your first lap through life, like a lot of things you're running into are still the first times I'm running into these things. When you're a sage, you're running through the second lap, and you're seeing these things again, whether it's through your kids or other people are like, no, I've been there. So you're on your first lap. Paul is telling you the same thing. Hate to ruin your day. Life's not about you. Paul says, younger men and women, teach them to be self-controlled, to have integrity, to be above reproach. Why? Is it because your righteousness earns God's favor? Uh. Is it because you earn your way to heaven? Uh. No, because it's not about you, is what Paul is telling Titus. He goes, remind the younger that it's not about them. Tell the spring chickens it's not about them. The world is going to try to convince them this is about them. And when you're going through things for the first time, it feels like the whole world is about you. And he says, remind them it's not about them. Remind them the reason that they are doing the things they're doing. The reason I'm encouraging you the way I'm encouraging you is so that those who are far from God will have no reason to stay away on your account. 
That's the call. That's the challenge. That's the encouragement. Have courage to live in such a way that even though you're running counter to a lot of culture, even though you're running counter to what the popular world would tell you to do, do it in such a way that those who are far from God have no reason to repel God on account of your life. Hmm. It says, women, young women, live this way so that no one will malign the word of God. Young men, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. That's living above reproach talk. That's, you're living at a, a space in a, in, a, in a zip code where people can't really point fingers. They want to, but they go, oh, I don't know. How many of us know someone who's had a bad experience in church or with Christianity and therefore rejects faith? Everybody. Some of you are in here having had a bad experience in church or with a Christian and have therefore rejected faith and someone dragged you in here and you're here and you're like, ugh. This is why Paul is instructing Titus this way. There are too many people that have been too burned by the hypocrisy and the lack of authenticity and the kind of arrogance. And Paul is saying, remind the youngers that they are modeling a faith for others. And if they do it in such a way with hypocrisy or inauthenticity, if they do it in this, this wrong way, there are those who would go, well, why would I follow your God? I don't want anything to do with that. So he says, teach them to live above reproach. This term is used multiple places in Scripture. In, in Titus chapter 1, it's used for elders. First Timothy, Colossians, above reproach, above reproach. It's a legal phrase. It's a legal phrase that indicates you can't be charged for something. Like if you were accused of a crime, but you had a really clear alibi, well, we can't charge him. It's really clear he wasn't there. She wasn't there. Okay, this is a legal term. Above reproach means you cannot be charged. You can be accused, but you'll for sure be acquitted. Alexander Strauch uh, wrote a book called Biblical Eldership. We use it as elders as kind of our model of, of, uh, well, the Bible says this is what elders are, and here's what they're supposed to do. And he pointed out, I was reading, and he pointed out that in, in both Titus and Timothy, the term above reproach is defined by the terms that follow. Like, what does that mean, though? And he, he says the way the construction works is, is what, when we ask what does above reproach mean, he says that just read the list that follows it. Faithful, pure, sober, self-controlled, lover of truth, which on the surface seems like those are nice things, but then when you try to actually live like in, in, in the flow of everyday life, those can be difficult things at times. Faithful, pure, sober, self-controlled, lover of truth. Living life is not always easy. Everyday temptations call. They want to lure you away. Navigating life is a little like climbing Mount Everest. Let's make a little illustration. Here we go. Sometimes it seems like life, living this above reproach life is impossible. I'm going to fail. Amen, you are. But if I fail honestly and authentically, okay, maybe you got something. Living life well and above reproach is a little like climbing Mount Everest in that it sometimes seems impossible. The path to the summit, I don't know if you know this, if you, you look into how people climb Everest, the path to the summit of Mount Everest is, is like littered with bodies because it's too dangerous to bring them down. So if someone dies on the way up to the summit of Mount Everest, they leave them. And some of these people died in such a, a remarkable place or wearing certain things that they've become landmarks, literally landmarks. This person's wearing that color coat or this jacket or that hat, and they're frozen to death on the top of Everest. And as you pass them, you know what mile marker you're at. You know where you are on the journey because it's green coat. Keep going. There he is. And this person who was attempting to summit Mount Everest has become a landmark on the way. 
800 or so try on average every year, about 10% of people who try to summit Mount Everest actually make it, which is actually a ton. And that number is growing because technologies and people are kind of cheating. Back in the day, it was nearly impossible. So in 70 years since the first person did it, total, a total, and this is the thing that every mountain climber wants to do, in 70 years, fewer than 6,000 people have ever made it. And lots and lots have died. It's deadly, but it is doable. The reason it's doable is because guys like Cami Rita. Cami Rita is going to be on your screen. This guy is a Nepali Sherpa. Sherpa doesn't do him justice. He's a Nepali alpinist. He's a mountain climber. He just happens to work taking other people up to the top of Everest. Most people never make it up. 90% of people who attempt it don't reach the summit. This guy's made it up there a world record 28 times. He just lives up there. You're like, whatever, come visit. He's climbed Mount Everest 28 times. And the story, his story is, is unique, and he's in his 50s, okay? He's not 32. He's in his 50s. He is in the sage portion of his life. And he spends his life bringing people up to the summit, bringing people to the pinnacle, bringing people up the mountain. This is what he does. This is what he lives for. Nobody makes it up without help. Here's the, the rule of Everest. Nobody makes it to the top without help whether that help is oxygen or more likely a team of Sherpas. And someone's carrying your bag and someone has extra oxygen and someone's guiding the way and someone tells you when to go and when not to go because they live up there and nobody makes it to the top without Sherpas. Kami Rita is a sage. He's a guide. He helps inexperienced people make the difficult journey to the summit. Too many young people attempt to summit life alone or join their lives with other people who are also inexperienced, and they go, well, we'll do this together, which just means we'll fail together. Too many young people attempt to summit life alone. Who have you invited into your life? Who has the wisdom to chisel on you, to challenge you, and to speak truth into your life? They don't become your new God. They aren't the gospel. They represent it and they will chisel, and they will challenge, and the Holy Spirit of God will work through them in you to make you better, to grow you up, to help you summit safely. If you are a spring chicken, and you do not have someone who is guiding you and providing counsel and providing wisdom, your job today is to find that person, to surround yourself with people who've gone before you, because the stakes are high. What did we say? It's not actually about you. Paul is saying the credibility of the gospel is at stake because you either become a landmark on the way to the summit or you become like a lighthouse. You become a beacon pointing to where you're supposed to go. So for your friends, for your coworkers, for the people who are in your family who don't follow Jesus, you for them are either going to be a landmark of death on their way or you're going to be a light that points to something greater. And that's really the choice you have. You can't split the difference and kind of just hang out in the middle. You choose to either tie your life to things that matter and point to Jesus, or you choose to go it alone, brave your way, oops, and now you're a frozen landmark on the way. Paul speaks to sages, he speaks to spring chickens, and then he speaks to workers. He uses the word slaves, but that's hard for our context. It's so different than the African slavery in early America that we're going to call them workers, laborers laborers with a master. 
Essentially, when we've talked to sages and we've talked to spring chickens, and workers kind of is everybody. So if you feel like you haven't been talked to today, it's your turn. Workers is everyone. That your, your work, Paul is saying, your work and your character represent Jesus. And the work, the character with which you do your work represents Jesus. In this way, work becomes worship. And if you don't see your work as worship, whatever that work is for the day, then you're seeing it wrong. Worship means to give something weight, to add your weight to it. When you cheer at a sporting event, you're adding, you're worshiping, you're adding your voice, your weight, your honor, your importance. You're giving that to the event happening in front of you. When you cheer at a concert, whatever, you're giving weight. If you worship fashion, fashion's your thing, you watch fashion shows, you like fashion things, you, you, if you worship that, you give it weight, you're adding honor to it, you're adding importance to it. If you worship sports, it's the same. If you worship money, it's the same. What do you think about? What do you talk about? What do you add importance to? What are you giving your life to? Your importance and honor and intention go to that. So when you worship Jesus, when life is not about you, but is about him, then what happens is you begin to give him glory and honor and attention and importance with every aspect of your life. So whether you're spending your Saturday mowing lawns or you're serving in public office, whether you're a student in school, you're retired from your career, whether you spend your days in finance or in the trades or in playing spades at the senior center, that is your work for the day. And how you go about that work matters. Paul is saying. How you treat those around you matter. How you serve those around you, that matters. The implication when we talk about workers, he says slaves work on workers, laborers. The implication is there is a boss. On every job, there's a boss. On every, for every slave, there is a master. For each and every one of us, he's asking us to take on the position of servants as well, which means who are you serving throughout your day? Your work and your worship, they are one and the same, and they are so clearly evidenced in how you serve, no matter your role. Rich, poor, young, old, single, married, this is everyone. How are you serving those around you? If life is an offering to pour out to Christ in this way, that work is then not something you do so you can retire. Because you can't retire from your real work if your real work is serving others as an evidence of Jesus in your life. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid for the job, if you're doing something else. It doesn't matter if it's Saturday and you're at home. If you are serving others, you are doing the work of Christ. So he says, your day, every day, should represent your work, your labor, the, the, the energy that you put out into the day should represent Christ, should evidence Jesus, should magnify Jesus, should worship Jesus. So is that true of you? Do you start your day, whatever that work day looks like, do you start your day going, let today be about you, Jesus? Let me serve others, even if they never ask me, so they, they might have some sense, some eternal whisper that there is something different about the people who love Jesus. I'll summarize and say, sages, sages, give your wisdom away. Can't take it with you. Worship Jesus in the service of the generation that is inheriting the world from you. I'm starting to sense it as I look at generations becoming adults behind me, and I don't like any of those generations <laughs> because they're not my generation. We're right. We've got everything figured out. The same way that the generations above me said that about my generation. And we can really quickly become the caricature of 
you know, the curmudgeonly whatever in the diner, just complaining kids these days, because that happens real fast. Or we can be activists in the way that we pour into a generation and shape a generation and love a generation that will lead the church in the days to come. Invest your life in helping others find the summit because you found it and you need to help other people find it. Young people, spring chickens. Seek wise people to help you create a life above reproach that honors God. The wisdom that they offer is about helping you live a life above reproach, to live a life that is without regrets, to live a life that communicates Christ. Seek out guides to navigate seasons well. Some people are going to ask me, how do I do this? You literally can go up to someone and ask them. Sages, you can go to a young person and go, hey, do you want to get lunch? Young person, you can say, not really. <laughs> it's an option. You're also welcome to find somebody that you could have some rapport with and be like, would you like, I don't know, can we meet sometime and just see if it's a fit? And then maybe once a month or maybe, and all of a sudden, before you know it, you're meeting once a week and you're living life together and you're getting all the way. Like that's, you just have to start. Seek out guides to navigate these seasons well. All, everybody, grow in courage. If you are a worker, if you have work, if you do anything all day, if you don't just sleep through the day, grow in courage. Grow in courage to live well, to do good, and in doing so, give glory and honor to Jesus. That's the point. It's not about you. Your life is to be poured out as an offering that points to Jesus and nothing less. So let's pray that God would give us the courage to do it. Lord, I'm grateful for Paul and his letter to Titus. I'm grateful to get a, a glimpse into what it looks like when the church is just getting started, when, when communities are just forming. But Father, uh, I need and I think we need to return to those moments of kind of infancy in the church where we, we remember what this is about. Lord, that the, the breath that we breathe, the, the life we live is not about us and is not about our happiness although, Lord, you provide so much joy. God, remind us in the depths of us that you created us for you, that we exist for you, that we are here to communicate you, to know you and make you known. So, Father, give us courage that we might step out in faith and do that. If it's uncomfortable to join our lives to somebody from a different generation, Lord, I pray that you would remove that hurdle. You'd give us courage. If it's difficult to admit that we're not quite there on our own, give us courage to make that admission. Father, give us courage to live the life you've called us to so that others might see you. Lord, you've given us Jesus, which is the greatest gift. I pray that our motivation would be that others might know the joy and security and wholeness we know through you. So God, give us inspiration and give us courage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.